Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have yet another special guest, Dr. Stephen Meyer, and we're going to be talking about his book, Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. And uh, if you remember, I had uh, David Berlinski on the show, and David Berlinski and Stephen Meyer are friends, and David Berlinski's last book was dedicated to Stephen Meyer. Uh, Stephen Meyer received his PhD from the University of Cambridge in in the philosophy of science. A former geophysicist and college professor, he directs the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute in Seattle, Washington. He authored the New York Times bestseller, Darwin's Doubt and Signature in the Cell. I'm excited to talk about this book today because it just, everything points to God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> everything and it's it's fascinating what what he has to say is fascinating in this book and in all of his books but first a word from our sponsor hello my name is adam comer and i'm ryan chittister and we're the host of life after addiction podcast if you or someone you love struggles with addiction check us out life after addiction podcast and you can subscribe at lifeaudio.com The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. And so welcome to Stephen Meyer. It's great to be with you, Beckett. Thank you for having me on. I'm glad we could finally make this work. So I know. I'm glad we could do this. So, um, all right. So return of the God hypothesis. Now, first, I want to quote the Richard Dawkins, the so-called new atheist, Richard Dawkins, uh, one of the new atheists. And he says, the universe we observe has the precise properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So how do we, because in the title you say return to the God hypothesis, let's talk about how we got to where we are today and let's let's rewind back to uh, the founders of modern science, the so-called scientific revolution, approximately 1500 to 1700. How how did things change? But let's first talk about the scientific revolution and how those scientists had a Judeo-Christian worldview and how that affected their scientific and, and then let's by all means come back to that lovely framing quote from Richard yes. Dawkins because it's a, it's a wonderful way of framing the whole discussion. And uh, though I end up disagreeing with Dawkins on the substance of the issues about the relationship between uh, scientific discovery and religious belief, he has a marvelous gift for framing the key issues with great clarity. So let's let's make sure we come back to that and not lose that quote. It's a great one. Yes. Uh, but in any case, the um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the, there's a big story arc here. And the the what many many people have been told by the new atheists and others that science and religion are at odds. They're at war. There's a inherent conflict between the two, but that has not been the the uh, the story of science from its inception. Uh, the scientific revolution, as it's called, which which historians date between say 1500 and 1700. I think the roots of it go back deeper into the late medieval period. But in any case, if you look at figures like uh, Johannes Kepler or mm-hmm. Robert Boyle or Sir Isaac Newton or uh, his tutor, Isaac Barrow, or the man who tutored Isaac Barrow, who had in turn tutored Isaac Newton, John Ray, you have these prominent uh, early scientists, all of whom 
are not only deeply religious personally, but they're pursuing their investigation of the natural world for very specifically religious reasons. In particular, I mean, all um, in this period, these are these are all men of of Christian faith, but they've been influenced by uh, developments in late Catholic medieval theology, by by ideas that are coming out of the Reformation, and in the period of the Reformation, the recovery of the Hebrew Bible. So there's a kind of ecumenical Jewish Catholic Protestant. Uh, contribution to the rise of modern science. And one of the key ideas that comes out of that renewed biblical perspective is the idea of the intelligibility of nature. There's the reaffirmation of human beings being made in the image of God, God being a creative uh, mind himself, and he has endowed... So the belief was that since God made our minds in his image, that we are able to understand the rationality and the order and the design that he built into nature. There's a principle of correspondence between, as um, Sir John Polkinghorne, the great Cambridge physicist put it, the reason within and the reason without, the reason built into mm-hmm. nature itself. And so there was, out of in this period, there was a, a, a religious co- a confidence, a biblical confidence in, indeed, in the ability of human beings to understand the 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 order and design in nature and that's what gave rise to the confidence that people had that nature had a secret to reveal and that we could discover it and so that was just one of the 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 ideas that came out of that that period uh that one of the judeo-christian ideas that came came out of that period that gave rise to modern science there were others like the, the conviction that there is an order in nature and that that order is contingent on the will of the creator and so, therefore, we have to go and discover it. There's an order there, but we can't just figure it out by first principles, reasoning as the Greeks did philosophically. Mm-hmm. But we have to we have to investigate. We have to use uh, we have to look at the empirical world around us and see well what what kind of order is it? And um, and oftentimes there was a because there was this conviction that there was this divine rationality been built into nature. There was also a huge interest in describing that with mathematics because the. The Kepler in particular, but also Newton thought that mathematics was the language of God. So that's that's where science starts. So the idea mm-hmm. that there's been an inherent conflict between science and religion is is um, it, it's not only false; it's exactly opposite of the case. It's a later development, yeah. And so, later, yeah. <clears throat> um, and speaking of the Greeks, just momentarily, you um, where wh- what was the process of Greek of Plato and Aristotle? What what was their scientific inquiry, inquiry, inquiry like? What, how did they pursue that? And well, yeah, of the two, uh, Aristotle was the more concerned about the the physical world around us, the empirical world, and uh, so there was there was definitely a Greek science, but many historians have looked at the period of the scientific revolution and said, well, now why? Why there and why then? Why did we get this yeah. explosive inquir- interest in the natural world and these very systematic methods of investigating the natural world arising then? And as the kind of process of isolating variables and analyzing different historical factors uh, uh, through that process, the, the uh, many prominent historians came to the, the conclusion that it it arose in the Christian West for Christian reasons. And the, and the, the big reason they cited, the, the, the difference between Greek science and this very productive uh, modern science that arose then with the systematic methods, the application of mathematics, uh, and the emphasis on the empirical, on the, the need to go observe and to experiment, was the, not just the idea of order. The Greeks had the idea of order. They had the rationalist credo, the universe is orderly and and um, and 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 uh, and best known through human reason. They believed in human reason, but the 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 modern scientists believed that the order was contingent, that it was contingent on the will of the creator. So I used to illustrate this with a with paintbrushes in in my uh, when I was teaching. You've got lots of different styles of paintbrush. They all have basically the same purpose to apply paint to a, but you use one paintbrush for one kind of application, another for a different type of reason. So in the same way, there's lots of different ways that the world could have been ordered, but we can't deduce from first principles. Uh, which way it might be. Gravity could have an, an inverse square law, as Newton discovered, or it might have an inverse cube law, or it might have a linear relationship, or there may be no relationship at all between the variables. So you have to go, you have to look and see. The creator had a freedom 
to order the world in many different ways. And that meant, as Robert Boyle put it, it's not the job of the natural philosopher to think what God must have done, but to instead go and see what he actually did do. And the Greeks were reasoning from a concept they called the logos, and they believed that there was a necessary order that we could deduce from first principles, that God had to make the world a certain way, or the world had to be ordered in a certain way if they weren't theists, because there was this underlying logic to the universe that could be known by human reason, but but not by observation, but rather by deduction. Right. Okay. And um, I love the story. You you talk about, you spoke at a hearing, you were invited to speak at a hearing uh, in terms of, uh, about viewpoint discrimination and teaching of biological origin, origin oh, right, public right, schools. Yeah. And you ended up quoting Newton in this. And I, if you, I don't know if you have that quote handy, but can you tell that story of, of what happened? At yeah, absolutely. Period? We'll be right back after this short break. Want to learn more about God and his will for your life one verse at a time? I'm Quinice Petway, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. I'm inviting you to tune in and subscribe at lifeaudio.com. It was the United States Commission on Civil Rights, and they were investigating whether or not there was a viewpoint discrimination in the teaching of biological origins. And when I was invited to this, I thought, well, you would hardly need a hearing to establish that. All you need to do is crack <laughs> open one standard high school or college biology class uh, textbook and, and you get the full orbed alleluia chorus to to darwinism with no reporting of the many uh the uh problems with the theories that are now being uh uh, uh explained in peer-reviewed scientific literature documented in peer-reviewed mm-hmm. scientific literature so um anyway i i presented my three-minute uh, testimony about about this and explained that I was not only a critic of Darwinism, but also a, a, an advocate of the theory of intelligent design. My opposite number at the hearing interjected and uh, uh, and said, well, you know, it, 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 it's it's true. And I had I had cited. Oh, no, uh, sorry. Here's here's the how the dialectic went. The, the one of the one of the commissioners then said, well, isn't this idea of yours in, of intelligent design isn't this similar to what the early founders of modern science believe, like Newton and Boyle and Kepler, and when and uh, and at that point, my opposite number interjected and said, "Well, it's true what uh, you know, young Doctor Meyer says. I was a lot younger then uh, that uh, you know that that Newton was very religious, but he took great pains to keep his religion and his ideas, his his religious ideas about intelligent design was the way she phrased it, out of his scientific work." And it happened that I had just finished an, an essay about about Newton's um, ideas about the relationship between science and religion. And on the front page, first page of my essay, I had this quote from something called the General Scolium to the Principia. Mm-hmm. And uh, the General Scolium is what uh, was a theological epilogue to his great work, the Principia or Principia, however you pronounce the Latin, um, where he laid out his ideas about universal gravitation. And so I immediately... Uh, responded by saying, well, but that's not true. In the, in the general scolium to the Principia, I said, uh, which sounded pretty impressive to the commissioners, <laughs> um, arguably the greatest work of physics ever written, Newton said the following, and I, I quoted this passage from his theological epilogue to the work, where he makes a design argument. And it's based on the the precise configuration and fine-tuning of the planetary orbits around the sun, and he said, this most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being, capital B. And yeah. so I went on to say, it's, you know, whether or not you accept the, the modern theory of intelligent design, it's an indisputable fact historically that the founders of modern science not only presupposed that there was design in nature, they also argued for that idea. They saw evidence of it and made made design arguments right in the context of their scientific uh, work and research. And what was the response of the other scientists? Uh, well, there was just the uh, other scientists didn't say too much, but I did notice that the commissioners suddenly started smiling and nodding like, well, this might be a little <laughs> more interesting hearing than we thought. She I represented, you know, the, the mainstream view of things. And I was the the dissident voice. Okay, well, now let's jump to the 19th century. And this is kind of where uh, God gets removed from the equation. And um, tell the story of Pierre Laplace when he tried to explain the origin of the solar system without reference to a designer. Right. And this, and this, this quotation I just gave from Newton, is, it was saying, he starts by saying, though the law, though, you know, the, we can understand how the 
the, the solar system functions by reference to the laws of gravity, we could by no means understand how it this system first arose without reference to a designing intelligence. And Laplace comes along in, uh, he publishes something 1799, 1802. He's got a great work, The Celestial Mechanics, in which he attempts to do what Newton said you could not do, which is explain the origin of the system, the, the solar system, by reference to the, the law of gravity alone, which Laplace viewed as a, in a sort of an autonomous thing, a, a natural process only. And Newton believed that behind the law of gravity was actually constant spirit action, that God was imposing an order on nature that we could perceive. And that's what we did. And we just simply described that with our laws of nature. In any case, uh, Laplace is called before uh, uh, Napoleon, in 1802 to receive commendation for this work. He's, he's upstaged the great British scientist Newton. That makes all the French very proud. And uh, But then he does ask him, he says, well, but but uh, in your book, in Newton's work, he talks about God frequently, but you don't mention him at all. And then there, there's this hypocritical account of Laplace sort of puffing himself up and saying, theater, I have no need of that hypothesis. <laughs> and uh, uh, William Herschel, the great British ast uh, astronomer, was apparently in the room with him. We're not sure if he ever actually said those exact words, but Herschel did record the the sort of uh, the, the the main thread of the conversation. And, that, and this was definitely Laplace's perspective, that he had a, a completely naturalistic account of the origin of the solar system. And he didn't need to account or in invoke a designing intelligence of any kind. Now, throughout the rest of the 19th century, you have... You have other figures who come along who kind of extend that way of thinking. Uh, we have new theories of the uh, in geology that attempt to explain the the great features on planet Earth, the mountain ranges and the river deltas and great canyons, all by reference to unguided, undirected natural processes. And then Darwin comes along in nineteen or eighteen fifty seven or sorry eighteen fifty nine, and uh, publishes the Origin of Species. And then subsequent to him, you have other scientists who extend his idea of the origin of new forms of life from one simpler form uh, by an evolutionary process to even to explain the origin of that first simple form of life, the origin of life itself. And Darwin has his book, uh, The, the uh, a Descent of Man, in which he yeah. extends his evolutionary ideas to explain the origin of us. And so by the end of the 19th century, you have this kind of seamless account or story that can be told about the origin of everything from the origin of the solar system to the origin of the great features on planet earth to the origin of new forms of life and even the origin of the first life and the origin of human life and so this is kind of a, a grand naturalistic narrative that arises and it ends up underwriting a a, a comprehensive materialistic worldview it's no longer just a a, a series of, of scientific theories about origins but this this grand narrative kind of underwrites this idea that the universe is eternal and self-existent and self-organizing that we don't need to refer to an external creator that the natural processes alone can produce everything we see and so by the end of the 19th century with darwin but also with figures like marx who has a utopian materialistic vision of the future and freud who has a in the early 20th century formulates a kind of uh, scientific based theory of human nature and he has a uh, he has scientific ideas about how to deal with our guilt you have these big philosophical questions that previously were answered by judeo-christian theology where did we come from where are we going what do we do about the human condition all of these things are addressed by these great materialistic uh scientists and philosophers at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century and so that theistic framework that gives rise to modern science is in the, by the early part of the 20th century is pretty much lost among elite intellectuals. And so you have yeah. a shift. And Freud famously said, God did not create us. We created the idea. What, what did he say? What was the Yeah, quote? exactly. Man did not, or God did not create man. Man created the idea of God. Right. And that is, that's a beautiful statement of, of the naturalistic worldview. Whereas every worldview has to answer the question, what is the thing or the entity or the process from which everything else came? Theism says that came from God, the, the God, which is a, a mind, a personal God who has a mind and intentions and thoughts. And he created the universe, the physical universe, and then shaped it to bring it into the, the form we see today. Materialism reverses that and says, no, it wasn't God as the prime reality, the thing from which everything else came. It was eternally existent matter and energy. 
and then by various naturalistic and evolutionary processes that produced everything we see around us. And eventually through the evolutionary process, we arose and conceived of the idea of God. So there's a kind of complete inversion or reversal. There is God in the naturalistic worldview, but it's God at the end of the process and only as a concept in the mind of man, not as a reality. So there's a kind of fundamental question underlying this worldview divide, and that is, is God real or merely imaginary? Right. And okay, so let's now turn to the three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. First is the Big Bang. And so talk, talk, talk about what is the Big Bang and um, talk about Hubble and his telescope and and the red shift that he discovered, uh, the expanding the expansion of the universe. So talk about what the Big Bang is and how what the implications of that are to this discussion. Right. And, that, and just putting that in context, there is this kind of big story arc. You start with a Judeo-Christian milieu or context that gives rise to modern science. By the late 19th century, that's de decidedly waning and it's being replaced with this materialistic understanding of the natural world. And science, uh, scholars call that actually scientific materialism. Right. And the new atheism of, for example, Richard Dawkins or Lawrence Krauss is just a modern popularization of that perspective. But then throughout the last hundred years in the 20th century, there have been numerous, and I highlight three great discoveries that are either bringing back that theistic perspective or should be bringing back that theistic perspective. And I'm seeing the shift because of many of the scientists I'm talking to, but you still have the new atheists out there, you know, uh, pushing the late 19th century view. But anyway, to the, to the Big Bang Theory. Um, the first big discovery that I think is contrary to the materialistic expectation is the discovery that the universe has a beginning. And remember that great framing quote from Dawkins. He says, the universe has exactly the properties we should expect if at bottom there's no purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Well, one of the discoveries about the universe that the materialist did not expect is the discovery that as best we can tell, the universe, the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy had a definite beginning. The materialist coming out of the 19th century thought that matter and energy were eternal and self-existent in the same way that theists think that God is eternal and self-existent. So the discovery that the universe had a beginning was very much contradicted the expectations of the materialists. How was that discovered? Uh, 19, 1920s, Edwin Hubble uh, comes into astronomy. He was a lawyer who he turned to astronomy and he begins using uh, these new great dome telescopes that the astronomers had built uh, in particular, the 100-inch telescope at Mount Wilson in Southern California. And using new photographic uh, plate technology and the ability to collect a lot more light with these giant telescopes, Hubble was able to determine, first of all, that uh, there are other galaxies beyond the Milky Way. And then secondly, he was able to de determine that those galaxies are actually moving away from us. In every quadrant of the night sky he surveyed, he found that the light coming from these distant galaxies was stretched out. The wavelengths of the light were were longer than you would expect if the objects in the night sky were stationary in relation to us. Um, your uh, viewers and listeners might recall from high school science the the so-called Doppler effect. If the train right. is moving away, what happens to the sound of the the pitch of the whistle? Well, it drops. Hmm. Well, that's that's because physically what's going on is the that acoustic wave is being stretched out and then it sounds lower to our ear in the same way light that's moving away from us is stretched out and it looks redder to our eye. Uh, if you shine light through a prism, it separates into the colors red to violet. The violet light is very uh, has very short wavelengths. The red light has very long wavelengths. And so what Hubble discovered was that the light was shifted in the red end of that uh, um, that spectra, and it looked redder than it should look if those objects were stationary in relation to us, and instead it looked as if the objects were all moving away. And so then that gave rise to yet a third discovery, which is that that, that suggested that the universe is expanding outward in the forward direction of time. But then if you think, well, if that's right, that'd be like the universe expanding something like a balloon, because in every direction the galaxies are moving away, but then what would what would the universe have been like a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago or a million years ago or a billion years ago at each point the universe would have been smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and all that galactic material would have converged to a point 
at some point in the finite past. A point marking the beginning of the expansion as you move forward in the forward direction of time, but also arguably marking the beginning of the universe itself, because you can't back extrapolate any further than that. Everything collides, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first really strong scientific indicator that the universe had a beginning. Uh, and then throughout the 20th century, there was this kind of push-pull where the scientific materialists who were un un uneasy with that conclusion because it seemed to contradict their worldview would formulate alternative theories. One was like the Einstein, did the, he, he fiddled with uh, the equations to kind of make it work, right? Exactly. Well, Einstein actually tumbled to the idea of a finite universe even before Hubble discovered the evidence for it. He uh, had a famous, uh, famously... Uh, developed the theory of general relativity, a new theory of gravity that implied that massive bodies actually curved the space around the, the masses, creating uh, kind of preferred trajectories for motion. So if you even pass light, pass a, 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 a star, it should bend. And this was actually confirmed in observational experiments in the 19-teens. But anyway, the point is that Einstein realized that gravity had this capacity to cur even curve space. And he realized that if gravity were the only force in the universe, then the universe would be so tightly curved upon itself that, that all that should exist is a giant black hole and there should be no empty space between massive bodies. But we don't live in that kind of universe, he reasoned. We live in a universe where there's space between these, the different stars and planetary systems. And eventually people realize space between different galaxies. So Einstein thought, well, then there must be a countervening force that's pushing outward against gravity. And that outward pushing force he called the cosmological constant. But that implied if there's an outward pushing force, that then we the universe must be expanding outward from a beginning point. And he thought, no, that can't be right. The universe is eternal. It's self-existent. Matter and energy has always been here. So he fiddled with his equations. And for, complete, for, no, for completely arbitrary reasons, scientifically, he assigned a very precise value to that outward pushing force that was equal and opposite to the pull of gravity. So he could portray the universe in a kind of static balance where the right. inward pull and the outward push were exactly matched. Now, there was no physical justification for that. And it turned out to be contrary to the evidence. And later, Einstein was actually confronted with that evidence by the great Belgian uh, priest physicist, Georges Lemaitre, they were in a taxi cab ride going to a physics conference in 1927. And Lemaitre said, hey, you got to find out about this guy Hubble and what he's discovered. Um, and besides, your equations don't work. He said that he told them that <laughs> if there were even little little perturbations anywhere in the universe, that static balance would 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 not work. And the universe would either expand or contract. He he, pro he proved this physically. But in any case, point is, four years later, at Lemaitre's urging, he goes out to Mount Wilson. He sees the evidence in Hubble's telescope for himself. Two weeks later, he announces to the New York Times that the universe is not static. It had a beginning and that Hubble and his colleague Hummison were right. They proved that the universe had a beginning. Later, Einstein actually said that that his fiddling, his gerrymandering, his own equations was the greatest blunder of his life. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then what, what about, I don't, I don't remember why this is in my notes, but what what is the Penrose-Hawking singularity theorem, and and what are the implications of that? Well, this is just a really fascinating thing because um, you do get you get these different theories that are being proposed to try to to explain the same evidence without a beginning. You have the steady state. You have another theory called the oscillating theory. Kind of one by one, they go by, they go down for for different reasons. In the mid nineteen sixties, Hawking makes a discovery based on theoretical physics, or it's a it's a theoretical proof. How should I say it? It's, it's a proof based on theoretical physics that that reinforces the conclusion of the of a cosmological singularity of a beginning point. He's working on black hole physics while he's doing his PhD. And he, he it's at that time, it's at that time that he contracts the ALS, the neurological disease. And he's so discouraged. He thinks he's going to quit the PhD, but there are close friends around him that encourage him to, to press on, and, and he does. And it's really quite an, an heroic story. But he he is thinking about black holes, and he's also thinking about what the, what the astronomers have been saying, that the universe is expanding in the forward direction of time. And he realizes that, that if that's true, that the matter in the universe is getting more and more diffuse as 
more and more space is being generated by the expansion. Hmm. But then he thinks, well, okay, then that would mean that if matter's more diffuse, then space is getting less and less tightly curved on Einstein's theory. But then he thinks, well, again, what about the, in the reverse direction of time? As you go back further in time, as matter gets more densely concentrated, then space gets more tightly curved. And as you go back and back and back, at each progressive point in the past, the curvature of space would keep increasing as the density of matter kept getting more, more and more concentrated. And eventually you'd reach a limiting case where the density of matter couldn't get any more dense and the curvature couldn't get any more tight. And at that point, you have uh, an infinitely tight curvature to the universe. And he called that the singularity. Mm. Now, what's interesting about infinitely tight curvature is that if something's, if a space is so tightly curved, it's infinitely tightly curved, it corresponds to no, to zero spatial volume. And so I used to ask my students, how much stuff, how much material can you put in no space? And of course, the answer to that is, is none stuff, no, no, no stuff. No stuff. And so these um, Hawking presents this idea of the singularity theorem in his, in his PhD thesis in, in 1966. And Penrose is one of the examiners, the great uh, Sir Roger Penrose. He's, he's still alive today, great Oxford physicist. And, um, and uh, anyway, Hawking is given the PhD in, in large measure because of this extraordinary proof. And one of the examiners tells him, now, well, now go work out the math or the maths, as the British say. And later he works with Penrose to provide an, a more rigorous demonstration of this singularity idea. And uh, later still, he works with the great uh, South African physicist, George Ellis, to um, provide additional arguments for, for these. Uh, there are actually a group of singularity theorems establishing this beginning. Now, there is a loophole that you can exploit to get around it. And Hawking spent many years of his career after that trying to exploit the loophole to get around the idea of a beginning. And we can talk about that too. But the basic the, the basic idea here is that general relativity, our best theory of gravitation, also implies not only a beginning, but a beginning, not only a beginning of an expansion, but the big or the beginning of the universe, but the beginning of space and time itself. And it, it's, it ends up painting a picture of the beginning of the universe that's not dissimilar to what the medieval theologians used to describe as creatio ex nihilo, creation of the physical universe out of literally nothing physical. And that, that's the kind of picture that general relativity by itself paints. Okay. And so uh, just to, in this section, what what is, talk about the cosmological argument. What is it just briefly, because this is kind of where this is going. Right. Well, so so you have these different lines of evidence pointing to a beginning. You have the evidence from observational astronomy. Uh, and there's, there were other classes of evidence from uh, from. Uh, astronomical evidences, something called the cosmic background radiation that was discovered in the mid sixties, a number of other uh, discoveries that, that point to a beginning. Uh, then you have these developments in theoretical physics, not only the Hawking Penrose Ellis singularity theorems, but then a later proof that's not based on general, but rather on special relativity known as the board guth uh proof of a beginning. And which by the way, does not have the same loophole. There's not a really a, a good way around it. Uh, that the Hawking proof has and uh, or allowed. And so you have these multiple lines of evidence pointing to a beginning. And that revives an ancient philosophical argument. And the philosopher William Lane Craig is very well known for making this argument. It's called the Kalam argument. It says mm -hmm. has two premises and a conclusion. The, pre the, 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 the first premise is whatever begins to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. And since causes are separate from their effects, the universe must have a cause which is transcendent, which is beyond itself. And in order to account for the phenomena, then the advocates of the Kalam argument also uh, uh, make other arguments suggesting that that transcendent cause must also be volitional in order to, to create a change of state from nothing to everything. And therefore, you're looking at a kind of intelligent transcendent being as the best explanation for the origin of the universe itself. I have a little different way of making that argument, but... The point is, what was always at issue in the in the discussion of the, of the cosmological argument was the second premise. Did the universe have a beginning or not? The materialists long said, well, um, if the universe itself, the physical universe itself was eternal and self-existent, it would not require an external creator. It's mm -hmm. only if it begins to exist, do you need a cause beyond itself? 
And so the cosmological argument for many centuries was thought to be um, equivocal. It wasn't all that persuasive because it might just be that matter and energy were eternal and self-existent in the same way that theists have always thought that God is the eternal self-existent thing. But post-1920s and up to the present, as we get more and more evidence for a beginning, it raises this great cosmological question. Well, then what caused the physical universe to come into existence? If matter itself come into if matter and energy themselves come into existence at a finite point in the past then before that there is no matter to do the causing and it means you can't really offer a materialistic explanation and that's that's been the rub with the the, the and, that, and that's why the there's been so much chafing among physicists from einstein to hoyle uh to to the advocates of the oscillating universe to many others there just is continued attempts to try to portray the universe as the eternal self-existent thing, rather than accepting that it is, seems to be a contingent uh, entity that has come into existence at a finite point in the past. Yeah, sounds like Genesis 1-1 to me. Well, um, it, that's exactly right. There's this convergence of testimony between the Bible, uh, and not only about the fact of a beginning, but also you get repeated mentions in the Hebrew Bible, in the Psalms and the prophets and elsewhere, of God either uh, stretching out the heavens or having stretched out the heavens. Both tenses are used and both are an accurate description cosmologically of what we now know. The universe is expanding and has expanded in the past. Yeah. And uh, okay, so let's move to the second discovery, the universe, the fine tuning of the universe. Um, and so talk about what some of the the constants are, the uh, parameters of the fine tuning and how this is a quote, Goldilocks universe. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And some physicists have used that term themselves. Um, interesting, interesting story here, actually. One of the big uh, dissenters, uh, opponents of the Big Bang Theory was Sir Fred Hoyle, the British mm -hmm. uh, Australian astrophysicist. He was a very ardent, scientific materialist early in his career and he, he was um uh and, and therefore for and for explicitly philosophical reasons which he made clear he proposed the steady state theory he, he thought that the, the the big bang theory smacked too much of the book of genesis it uh, affirmed a beginning and he, he said he was a uh a democritian he just simply did not believe that something could come from nothing well, of course, the cosmological argument agrees with that and says, well, the physical universe did come from something. It just wasn't something physical. But Hoyle wanted a physicalist or materialist explanation. And so he proposed a steady state theory. And we won't go into all that, but that theory went went uh, went down by 1965. And even his co two co um uh, inventors of the theory, uh, Herman Bondi and, and Thomas Gold, rejected the theory. Hoyle held on, but later had a an about face in his in his underlying worldview. And it was because he himself discovered some of these fine-tuning parameters. Now, what's meant by fine-tuning? Uh, uh, engineers are familiar with the idea of a tolerance, that things can't be too big or too small to do. The screw's too big or too small, it's not gonna fit in the hole and, 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 and tighten things down. And you have, so you have a, a tolerance is a range in which a, a, a desired outcome can take place outside of which the outcome will not take place. And what the physicists have discovered is there are numerous physical parameters that fall within very narrow tolerances. The, the force that is pushing the universe apart called the cosmological constant is exquisitely fine tuned to one part in 10 to the 90th power, which is, it's hard to get your mind around that. But the idea is that if, it, if that force were a little stronger, we'd have a heat death. If it were a little weaker, we'd all, the universe would collapse into a black hole. And the fine-tuning, the degree of fine-tuning is just absolutely exquisite. It's, it's a, a very narrow sweet spot. Uh, and you have multiple parameters that have the same, the same feature, the strength of gravity, the strength of electromagnetism, the other fundamental forces of physics, the masses of the elementary particles, the quarks, the electrons. So you have a, a series of parameters where the forces are not too strong, not too weak, the 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 speed or rate of expansion not too fast not too slow the masses of the particles not too heavy not too light everything is in that sweet spot and if any one of those parameters fell outside of those sweet spots you would have a universe that was incompatible with life and even incompatible with basic chemistry 
So you you couldn't you we basically be living well we wouldn't be living but there'd be nothing but a black hole or or a super diffuse universe where the the energy was so diffuse that we couldn't have stable planets or galaxies or anything. So so that's the the kind of idea of the the Goldilocks universe. And Hoyle later in his life, having discovered some of these fine tuning parameters himself, has a, a philosophical about face and says uh, a common sense interpretation of the evidence suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics to make life possible. Right. I, I always like to say, I, I love the way the monkeys always make it into the origins discussion, whether <laughs> they're sitting at the typewriter or whether they're the things from which we were supposedly evolved or whatever. But um, so he's got, a, he, he thinks the, the common sense interpretation of fine tuning is that there was a fine tuner. And if and, you think about that, it makes sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so what about, um, People like Lawrence Krauss and the idea also of, of a multiverse hypothesis and how and the problems with the idea of a multiverse hypothesis. That is that there have been many alternative explanations for the fine tuning that have been offered besides the intelligent design hypothesis. Uh, but one by one, they've been found to be inadequate or wanting. Uh, among physicists and philosophers who've thought about them carefully, there's something called the weak anthropic principle, the strong anthropic principle. I write about all those in my book and explain why they are no longer the go-to naturalistic explanations. The go-to naturalistic explanation, the non-design explanation, is this multiverse idea that you're talking about. And the idea there is that the, there are, uh, that yes, the, universe, the, the parameters that make life possible are individually extremely improbable and collectively almost beyond uh beyond computation there's they're so they're so collectively improbable but if we can conceive of a lot of other universes maybe gabillions and gabillions that's a technical mathematical term <laughs> um so many universes if we if we if there if there are enough other universes out there then we can then we realize that eventually by sheer chance, by random good luck, uh, in one of those universes, the right set of parameters would have had to arise somewhere. And we just happen to be in that lucky universe. And so we mistake that improbability as an indicator of design when in fact, somewhere it was inevitable that life would have to arise uh, if this all the... If, all the parameters were just just so. So that's the multiverse hypothesis. But there's no way to empirically prove that. Well, that's right. But you can't directly prove that God exists either. You infer God's existence from the fine tuning, from the beginning of the universe. So there's a, a sense in which in both, both, both hypotheses invoke unobservable entities. But the question is, which hypothesis is better? And is, is there any way to, to, to any reason to favor one over the other? And it turns out that there is. Uh, because... Yeah. For the multiverse to work, uh, it, you can't just posit the existence of other universes, because if the universes are causally disconnected from one another, then what other happens in all those other universes doesn't affect anything in our universe, including whatever process was responsible for the setting of the fine-tuning parameters. In other words, if those other universes are out there and they don't interact with ours, then their mere existence doesn't do anything to change the probabilities in this universe. So in virtue of that, multiverse advocates have proposed what are called universe-generating mechanisms. And there are some other reasons in physics for, for, for proposing these too. But the idea of the universe-generating mechanism is that there's some underlying process that's spitting out universes. And then if, if there is such an underlying process, there is a kind of common cause of all the universes. So we can then portray our universe as sort of a lucky winner of a giant cosmic lottery. But this is where the rub comes in. Turns out when you look at those other universe generating mechanisms, one based on string theory, another one based on something called inflationary cosmology, that those universe generating mechanisms are themselves, or rather they have to be exquisitely finely tuned to produce a multiplicity of universes, even in theory. So to explain the origin of the multiverse, you need universe generating mechanisms, which themselves have to be finely tuned, and you're right back to where you started with unexplained, <laughs> prior unexplained fine tuning. And then this is where, for me, the rub comes in because what when we talk about fine tuning in our experience, whether we're talking about a finely tuned French recipe or a finely tuned inter internal combustion engine 
or a finely tuned set of parts on an electrical circuit. Fine tuning refers to a, an improbable combination of factors which jointly work together to uh, produce some desired outcome or effect. They have to perform some function. And when, so whenever we see a finely tuned system, any of those examples I just mentioned, the recipe, the circuit board, et cetera, the cause of fine tuning is always in our experience intelligence. Mm -hmm. And this is why Hoyle said a common sense interpretation of the fine tuning suggests a fine tuner. So yes. if we're back to unexplained prior fine tuning, we're just back to where we started, which is a, a, an evidence which in our, based on our uniform and repeated experience is always the product of mind. And so I think, I think the fine tuning is really actually a very powerful indicator of, of intelligent design and evidence of a design that's been present from the very beginning of the universe. So it's pointing to a transcendent intelligence, not a space alien or something like that. Right. Okay. So let's move to the third discovery. Um, there have been huge bursts of information into the biosphere, uh, the origin of life. Talk about that a little bit and, um, and how this discovery is this is a really important discovery and and Watson and Crick and how they elucidate elucidate DNA the structure of DNA talk about that sure this is this is where i first really got interested in these questions about the intersection between science and philosophy or science and metaphysics or science and religion um i attended a conference in the 1980s when i was a very young scientist there was a panel on the origin of the problem of the origin of life and there were, the panel was divided between people who were interested in this idea that there might be design in the universe and people who were strict scientific materialists. And what was shocking to me was that all the panels, they were all experts on the origin of life problem. How do you get, and that is, by the way, the idea of how do you get from the chemicals in a prebiotic soup or an early ocean or a hydrothermal vent or whatever to the first cell? How do you explain the origin of the very first life from simpler non-living chemicals? Darwin didn't actually address that question. He addressed the question of how you get from the first simple forms of life to all the forms of life we see today. Mm -hmm. But there's a prior question. It's addressed by a branch of evolutionary theory called chemical evolution. And all the panelists on this at this conference that I attended were experts in this uh, on the theory of chemical evolution. And interestingly, whether they were theists or proponents of the idea of design or whether they were materialists they all agreed that we did not have an adequate theory for the origin of life that chemical the chemical evolutionary theories were inadequate and this shocked me because i had two science majors prior to i majored in physics and geology i'd taken a lot of courses on on, on where evolution came up and i was under the impression that that the scientists had this question all you know, the evolutionary biologists had this thing cooled and it was nothing like the case. And the key, there were many problems that were highlighted in this discussion of uh, 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 associated with the theory of chemical evolution. But the biggest one was that nobody had any explanation for the origin of the code, the origin of the information in DNA. Nobody could figure out how you would get from chemistry doing its thing, brute chemical interactions, to a functioning code as had been discovered by Watson and Crick um in their in their work in the 1950s about dna and so that's that's really the really exciting discovery that's that's driving all this in 53 1953 watson and crick elucidate the structure of the dna molecule and we all learn about that in high school biology it's got the beautiful double helix shape that's kind of cool but an even more profound aspect of that discovery was elucidated in 1958 by francis crick himself crick had been a code breaker in World War II, which I think is kind of an interesting uh, sidelight to the story. But in 1958, he realizes that inside that helix, there are four subunits called bases or nucleotide bases. This was part of the original Watson and Crick discovery. But he realizes that those bases are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language or like the zeros and ones in a section of software. Mm -hmm. they're, they're essentially digital or alphabetic characters that are forming a, a, a an informational a set of informational instructions for building proteins, and this became known as his sequence hypothesis that DNA literally contains information in a digital or alphabetic form, and that information is being used to construct the proteins and protein machines that are crucial to keeping all forms of life um, alive. 
And at this conference, the scientists discussing the origin of life problem were unanimous in acknowledging that we did not have an explanation for where the origin of that information came from. And that's how I got into, I ended up doing my PhD in the, in, uh, the philosophy of science. And my, my dissertation was on uh, origin of life biology. And this problem remains to, this, to the present day. We do not have a chemical evolutionary account of the origin of the information necessary to build the first life. And yet, there's something really curious about this DNA. It's Bill Eight says it's like a software program. It's much more complex than any we've ever created, he said, but it's like software. Richard Dawkins himself acknowledges that it's like a machine code. Well, what do we know about the origin of code, about the origin of software? Well, it, we know it comes from a programmer. And in fact, whenever we see information, especially in a digital or alphabetic form, and we trace it back to its ultimate source, we always come to a mind, not a material process, whether we're talking about something like a, uh, a paragraph in a book or a, a section of, um, uh, of, of software or information embedded in a radio signal or a hieroglyphic inscription. Information is always the product of intelligence. And so uh, absent a materialistic explanation, and I can tell you people have been working very, very hard and proposing many different materialistic explanations for the origin of information, and they all fail. Um, Absent those explanations, we do know of a cause that does produce information, and that is a mind. And so uh, the, the, the discovery of information at the foundation of life, I think, provides a powerful indicator of a designing intelligence at work in the origin of life. And I would also argue in, in subsequent big bursts of biological creativity we see in the fossil record. Yeah, speaking of the fossil record, um, in your book, Darwin's Tao, which you also discuss in this book, um, The Return of the God Hypothesis, Talk, talk, tell us, explain what the Cambrian explosion is and what the significance of that is. Right. I think it's a kind of some icing on the cake for this biological design argument, yeah. because uh, what you see in this Cambrian period and in other periods in the history of life, by the way, it's not just the Cambrian, but the Cambrian is in a way the most dramatic example of the abrupt appearance of major new forms of life. Uh, the biological term for that would be morphological innovation, the innovation, new, completely new biological form. Now, that presents two mysteries. The first is, well, from a Darwinian point of view, where are the ancestral precursors for those new forms? When you look in the lower Precambrian strata, you do not see uh, simpler forms of those the, of the animals that first arise in a kind of rudimentary version. There's just nothing there that's remotely similar that you could attribute ancestry to. Mm -hmm. And so you have this, uh, this pattern of abrupt appearance. Uh, and so it leaves this the problem of you know, the missing links or the missing ga there's gaps in the fossil record, the missing antecedents. So that's a problem that I call that the mystery of the missing fossils. Um, but an even deeper mystery associated with this is kind of, uh, is the question associated with the question of how would you how would these animals be built? Because in our in our modern 21st century understanding of biology, we know that it takes information to generate biological form. It, form requires information. In our we know the same thing in our computer world. If you want to give a computer a new function, you have to provide new code. So the same thing is true in life. If you want to build a new biological form of life, if you want to build a new form of life or a new anatomical structure, you've got to have the instructions for building the proteins and the cell types and the, the, the anatomical structure that makes that new form of life possible. So the Cambrian explosion is not just an, an explosion of new form, biological form, it's an explosion it attests to an explosion of new information. And the question is, where does that come from? Now, and when was this, when was the, the Cambrian explosion, when was it discovered? Uh, well, I think it was in Dar China and another place. Well, right. There have been some great modern finds, but um, the really first uh, widely recognized Cambrian deposits were discovered in Wales in the 19th century. And Darwin knew, knew about the problem of the Cambrian explosion. He actually wrote about it in The Origin uh, of Species and, and said it was a, 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 um, a problem that he could not at that point solve. But he imagined that maybe the, the gaps in the fossil record would later be filled in. In fact, they haven't been, and instead the, the, the gaps or the discontinuities have become more pronounced as we've discovered more and more different weird Cambrian animals, almost all of which lack 
ancestral intermediates in the lower strata. So the 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 discontinuity is more striking in our eyes today than it was in 1859. I mean, from our perspective, we realize that the Cambrian explosion is more more explosive than Darwin <laughs> realized. So that's that problem has not been solved. But the the problem of the um, the origin of information has become more acute as well, and it's because of the the DNA discovery. When we when we realized that DNA contained information in a digital form, that it was in that sense like software or like a written language, that raised a big problem with the standard explanation for where new biological form would come from. The standard neo-Darwinian, modern Darwinian idea is that if you mutate or randomly change the digital characters in the DNA, the A's, C's, G's, and T's as they're represented by biochemists, then that would generate novel sequences of information, which would build new proteins, which would help sustain the building of new forms of life. But if we think about the information as, as expressed digitally, we have analogous experience of what happens when you start to randomly change digital characters in a section of functional text or functional information. If you, in our computer world, start randomly changing the zeros and ones in a section of functional software, you're not going to, you're going to destroy the function you have before you ever generate a new program or operating system. Mm -hmm. You fall off the functional plateau into a functionless abyss. Now, if that happens in biology, if you start changing the ACs, Gs, and Ts randomly, and they degrade the ability to build a functional protein before they generate the ability to build a new one, then you're going to fall into a functional abyss and, and natural selection will have nothing to select because natural selection selects for functional advantage. And there's been recent experiments performed by an Israeli protein scientist. Alas, recent, he had died fairly recently, but before his death, Dan Tofik showed, Israeli protein scientist showed that if you start to accumulate mutations in a section of DNA for building a stable protein structure called a protein fold, within a very few number of mutations, you'll degrade the structure of that stable fold long before you ever come up with an, a, new, a new protein fold. So it has the same feature we find in computer code. You, if you start randomly changing things, you're gonna wreck stuff before you ever generate something new that's functional. And, and, and so the discovery that biology is, that the, the generation of new biological form is based on digital information, at least in part, uh, poses a huge problem to Darwinian accounts of the origin of new information, because randomly changing functional sequences is going to degrade information before you energy, uh, generate new functional information. And that's, that's a big problem that hasn't been solved. And it's one of the reasons that there are an increasing number of evolutionary biologists now calling for a new theory of evolution. Wow. Well, we'll close with this question. Um, why is theism the best solution given the evidence rather than deism or pantheism? That's an excellent um, question because there's both, we've been talking about the individual scientific discoveries and what they imply, but collectively the three discoveries together, uh, I think have a, a very clear implication for worldview as to, as to, that is to say they have a very clear implication as to which of the competing worldview systems best explains the information we have about biological physical and cosmological origins after i wrote darwin's doubt and signature in the cell my first two books were, were which were about the case for intelligent design at the point of the origin of life and at the point of the origin of animal life a lot of my readers asked well who do you think the designing intelligence is and what can science tell us about that? Because in the first two books, I simply argued that we had evidence for an intelligence of some unspecified kind and didn't um, didn't make a further argument about, mm -hmm. about what type of intelligence are we talking about? Right. I did, I did acknowledge that I myself am a theist, and I thought the, the evidence was had theistic implications. It was consistent with theism. But in the new book, I, I, I finally came clean and uh, uh, addressed. <laughs> you came out of the closet. Was, yeah, well, I, I've never been an advocate of a space alien designer hypothesis. I don't think it really. Yeah. And, and and based on the biology, there have been some recent, there have been actually proposals going back all the way to Francis Crick in 1980 
he wrote a little book called Life Itself, in which he proposed this idea of directed panspermia, that life arose because the, the conditions on the early earth are so inhospitable to the chemical evolutionary origin of life. He proposed that life arose on another planet, it evolved on another planet, and then was in, and, and was intelligently seeded here uh, on earth. Other proponents of panspermia have, have, have proposed intelligent design as the explanation for the information in DNA. And um, but but then said that that got the evolutionary process going, and then then uh, some intelligent being again seeded life here on Earth. So that's the idea of a space alien designer. Uh, someone sent me an article yesterday about uh, from a, a, a new journal with someone more recently proposing uh, um, the idea that the, the the digital information is pointing to a design, but an alien designer. Now <clears throat> that I think is problematic for a couple reasons. The first is that it it doesn't actually solve the problem of the origin of information. Um, it just kicks the problem out into space. If you think life evolved through a chemical evolutionary process somewhere else, and that got evolutionary process going, and eventually that produced an intelligent agent who seeded life on Earth, you still haven't explained how you get information from code. Now, if you say there was a pre-existing intelligence that designed the information on another planet, well, you still then you have to account for where did that being come, come from, and uh, and that according to Richard Dawkins, who once floated this panspermia idea, that being would have evolved by a purely explicable naturalistic process. And so then you're right back to this still unexplained problem of the origin of information. So I don't think it, it's it's adequate on its own terms, kind of begs the ultimate question. But in addition, the space alien designer hypothesis does not explain the origin of the fine-tuning, because the fine-tuning of the universe is present for many of the fine-tuning parameters were were established at the very beginning of the universe. And so no no being within the cosmos can explain the origin of the exquisitely finely tuned physical parameters that would make its later evolution possible, or at least in theory possible. So that's getting the 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 cause after the 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 effect. And mm-hmm. um so so I think the the space alien designer hypothesis is question begging with respect to the origin of life. It is in, causally inadequate to explain the fine tuning of the universe itself, and it's fine. It's it's inadequate to it's inadequate to explain the origin of um, the the universe itself. No, no being within the cosmos can explain why the universe began from a singularity 13.8 billion years ago. Um, so I think the space alien designer hypothesis. If if you take it seriously, it's sometimes seen as almost like a punchline and a joke. But there are scientists who have taken it seriously and proposed it. I think it's not inadequate to explain the full range of evidence, evidence we have about biological and cosmological origins. Similarly, deism, which would be another type of design hypothesis, might be able to explain the origin of the universe itself and the origin of the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics and the initial conditions of the universe, uh, because a deistic creator, by definition, acted at the beginning, but does nothing after that, leaves the system to run on its own after the original creation of the universe. So a deistic creator could explain the cosmological fine-tuning and the origin of the universe, but it would be it would provide an inadequate explanation for the origin of the information that arises long after the beginning of the universe that's necessary to explain the origin of life or the origin of, for example, the Cambrian explosion. So in the book, in the, at the very end, I do a kind of a it's almost like philosophical survivor looking at each of the different worldviews and um, evaluating their explanatory power, and then one by one kicking them off the island if they're if they're <laughs> not adequate. And I my conclusion is that classical theism, with its affirmation of a transcendent intelligence, who is also active in the creation that uh, that 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 theistic God also sustains and upholds provides the best overall explanation for the evidence we have about the origin of the universe, the origin of its fine-tuning, and the origin of life. And it's a pretty radical conclusion, but I call that the return of the God hypothesis. And I'm finding an increasing number of of very high-profile scientists are um, attracted to this way of thinking, and then that's bringing back the theistic perspective that we lost at the end of the 19th century. So that's the the return. That's good news. So guys, again, it's the book is Return of the God Hypothesis. And thank you, Stephen Meyer, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for great interview. We covered a lot in a short time. Yeah. So see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. 
episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.